You are listening to the Grace Church Podcast. To learn more about grace, including our gathering times, visit us online at thegracechurch.net. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Tommy Jones. Last week we said that, that, that there's this, in, the, in Revelation, God has this scroll. And the scroll is God's will for all of humanity. And so he's got this scroll and it's, it's his decrees for all the earth. It's his good and pleasing and perfect plan. And so John sees this and John wants it to be open, wouldn't you? John wants to know what's in it. He's like, oh man, you, you, that's everything. I want to see that. I want to know what's in there. And then John weeps because no one is worthy to open that scroll. There's not one person who's worthy to open it until we're introduced to this, this person called the lion of the tribe of Judah. And that person is who? Jesus. And it says he hears this lion. And so here they're like, no, there's one who is worthy. It's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is worthy to open the scroll. And so we hear this lion. And then, he, and then when he turns to see the lion, what does he see? A lamb. A lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. And so there's just this really cool scene. And, and all of heaven, when they hear the lion, but they see the lamb, something breaks out. And it's going on. And what are they doing in heaven when they, when they see this? They're worshiping. It's like this is an incredible moment. It's happy and it's joyful. And we, so many of us experienced it last week. And I think maybe a lot of us left last week going, man, Revelation is actually really fun. I don't see what the big fuss is. I don't see, you know, what's the worry? Well, today I introduce you to what the big fuss is. Um, today we're going we're gonna to talk about the seven seals. Um, and they're not like, ur, ur, not those kind of seals. The seals, remember that the scroll is wrapped with seven seals. And um, each one of the seals has some meaning, of course, and we're, we're going to go through those uh, today and sort of figure out what each one of them mean. But one of the concepts we have to remember as we go into this is many of us were raised with an idea of end days or, or last times. And for many of us, we were raised with this idea of the end days and the last times were something that was coming. Like that's something we're waiting for. But that is not the biblical understanding of end days or last times. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 1.1, it says this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through prophets. Okay, in the past means in the past. He spoke to our ancestors through prophets. And many times in various ways, like burning bushes and all that stuff, right? But it says, but in these last days, the, like in the last days which we're experiencing right now, um, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom all things were made in the universe. So the tense there is that the last days, at least according to, to the author of Hebrews, and, and I believe John, the last days, the end times, happened the minute Christ resurrected. That was the beginning of the end times. So this guy is not writing as one who's waiting for the end times. He's writing as one who's experiencing the end times and waiting for the end times. He's in what's known as the now, but not yet. The end times are happening, but they are also to happen. And so we must read this not as people who are waiting for the end times, but as people who are living in the end times and waiting for the end times, right? And I know it's a little confusing, but we are experiencing the end times today. And John was experiencing the end times then. And we will continue to experience these end times until Christ comes back and redeems all, all of creation. And so we can't read this as like, oh, Revelation is the, the playbook that I will use to prepare for something that's happening. No, Revelation is the, is the playbook you use to prepare for today. This isn't your guide to surviving what is to come. This is your guide for surviving in what now is. 
And so as we read this, we read it as people who are experiencing and waiting. And so the big picture, big picture for this part of Revelation is this. And like uh, this is a couple of sentences that will help you understand everything we're going to talk about today. In this world, you will have trouble. In this world, there will be difficult times. But take heart, for Christ will overcome this world. And that's the big picture for today is, is that there are difficult times in, in the world. And imagine, remember, remember the audience he's writing to are people who are being persecuted. They're a persecuted minority. Uh, that they, they have to swear allegiance to other gods even to eat. They're being starved. They're being beaten. Remember, Polycarp was burned alive because he refused to denounce Jesus. Every single one of the apostles was, was martyred. One of them was crucified upside down because he refused to be crucified like Christ. One of them was filleted alive. How many of y'all are fishermen in the room? One of them was filleted alive. You got me? They were living in some tough times, but there was still hope in these tough times. And so what we're saying is there's hope even when it seems dark. And so now we're going to meet the famous four horsemen. You guys ever heard of the four horsemen? I'm not talking about the WCW back in the day. I'm talking about the four horsemen from the Bible. All right, so, uh, and I would not read this as four literal horsemen. I don't believe that one day you're going to look up in the sky and you're going to see a horse coming down, you know, like this. I don't, I don't think that's what we're talking about. I think these horsemen represent something and some things, and I think what they represent is, is what we're really looking at. So open your Bible, Revelation chapter 6, verse 1, and let's meet horseman number 1. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown. And he rode out as a conqueror built, bent on conquest. Okay, we got a couple of keys to what they're talking about here. The color white. Who wears the color white? Royalty, kings. We have a crown. Who wears crowns? Kings. We also have a bow. Now, the bow, I had to I'd do some research on this one. I, and all, all of these sort of take, remember, we study what was happening then to understand what this means now. And one of the, one of the invading armies to the Israelites, one of the people who was bent on, on conquest of other nations, they were famous for their bows. So we believe what they're saying here is what this writer is ushering in is war between nations, king versus king, right? Nation versus nation. And so is this something that we have seen before when nations war against each other? Yeah. I don't think that's something we're waiting for. I think that's something we've seen. Uh, the, the 1940s, a little thing called World War II, right? I think we've seen, as a matter of fact, I think right now, are we not seeing nation against nation even right now? And we'll probably see it in the future. And so this first horse is war, battle against nation against nation, and Christians are often caught up in this. But remember... In the midst of all of these things, the king is still on the throne. But so with this first one, what we see is war between nations. Second horse. Verse 3. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. What should you do when you see anything red? Stop. Good job, guys. So when you see the fiery red horse, you, okay, stop. What, what are they talking about here? Its rider was given power. Let's come back to that. His, its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. Okay, so this one is violence, like bloodshed, person against person. Is that something we experience in this world? As a matter of fact, I, remember in Genesis, God creates this perfect world 
where humans and, and nature are in this beautiful harmony. And that lasts a few chapters until a brother kills a brother, right? Cain kills Abel. And then a little bit later after that, there's a guy named Lamech. Google him. Lamech is a murderer, and he's proud of it. Like Cain and Abel repented. For the, Lamech is like, ah, I'm the best killer around. That, that's how far they fell. And today, people kill each other. And today we live in a culture where life is not that valuable. I mean, gosh, d downtown Little Rock. How many people have died lately? Apparently we don't hold life in a great sanctity because people die all the time in this world. And so this is bloodshed, people killing each other. But there's an interesting thing I want to I hit on this. It says, aloud. Go, go back to that verse for me if you don't mind. It says, um, then the, the writer was given power. The writer was given power to take peace from the earth. Who could possibly give someone power to take peace from the earth? Who's the only person who could do that? God. So it's, and this is something we've got to struggle with a little bit here. It's as if God, it's as if God gave this writer power to carry out bloodshed. It's as if God gave this writer power to carry out God's wrath. And, and I think that's something we like to say, oh, God would never allow anything bad to happen. But that's not the God of the Bible who allows a world where there's free will. And we've made all sorts of choices, and our choices have caused problems. And so God allows us to reap the consequences of our choices. And sometimes God's wrath isn't pretty. But what we're seeing here is, is a lot of the problems in the world is God allowing us to experience the consequences of our own choices. God's wrath poured out. And it's hard because it's difficult. But it says, uh, let's, go, let's go to the next one. We'll come back to that. Verse 5. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Okay, that one you're kind of like, what? How many of you use, um, how many of you trade pounds for wheat? Actually, don't answer that, because someone might. <laughs> don't answer that question. Don't want to get anybody in trouble. Is, is around 16 times higher than what you would have actually gotten. So what he's describing is inflation so bad when your normal amount of purchasing power will no longer purchase what it used to purchase. Inflation economy is so wrecked where only the super wealthy have and the rest of the people are suffering because things cost way more than they used to cost. Is this something we're waiting to happen? I, I believe we're living in this. And I think we can all see this. And this isn't the first time in history this has happened. It happened in the Great Depression. This has happened over and over and over again when world economies get so out of whack that common people can't even afford bread and milk. Lord forbid you got to buy gasoline, right? Again, I, I think we're living in this. But what's the hope? Because there's a constant reminder that even in the midst of this broken economy, there's a king on the throne. And there's a constant reminder in the Bible that says man cannot live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so even in times of want, even if we don't have, we still have faith that God has a plan. And I believe the message of the Bible would be it would be better to die hungry and poor but being loyal than it would be to die fat and happy and have everything you want but turn your back on the king. 
And so I, I think that's what we're seeing right here is even in times of want, God's in control. Verse 7, when the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Now, you, you don't have to read the Bible to know a pale horse is bad, right? If you know Clint Eastwood, you know the pale rider never brings anything positive. And so here's this pale horse. Its rider was named Death. These, again, are bad signs, right? What's your name? Death. Okay. And Hades was following close behind him. So you got death and Hades on a pale horse. They were given power. Once again, they were given power. Isn't that interesting? They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beast of the earth. Okay, so I, tragic death will happen in this world. Tragic death, disease, and famine will happen in this world. And again, are we waiting for this to happen? Guys, read your history books. The Black Plague, the Spanish influenza, there have been plagues that have taken out massive populations of people over and over and over across history. We've seen this. Now, it may happen again one day, but we have seen disease and disorder and, and all these famine plagues take out massive populations of people all across history. This isn't something we're waiting for. This is something that has happened and something that will happen again. And you've got death and Hades were given power. But don't forget, Revelation 1.1, Revelation 1.18, excuse me. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forevermore. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. So even though hell and death exist in this world, and we, much of that is our fault because we have all chosen sin, because we have chosen our way over God's way, so there's death and there's hell. But who really has the authority over everything? Even though there's death and even though there's hell, who really has authority over all things? It is God, the one who is on the occupied throne. And so even though there are realities in this world, the reality is those things don't hold power over God. He's still in charge even over what appears to be bad situations. Revelation 6, 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar. This may be one of my favorite ones from this week. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. Okay, so he sees martyrs, people who died because they refused to denounce Christ. So Polycarp, we talked about him, all the martyrs from the church at Ephesus. I don't, if you got, there's a magazine called The Voice of the Martyrs. You guys should check it out sometime. There are still people being martyred all around the world, okay? There are people martyred in the Sudan and in Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan and Iraq. There are Christians who actually die because they refuse to renounce their faith. And so he, he, in this, he sees all those who have died, and they're, and they're gathered around the throne. It says, they call out in a loud voice, how long, God? How long, sovereign Lord? You're holy and true. How long until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. What an unsatisfactory answer. God, how long? I mean, imagine you're with and you're surrounded by other martyrs, and you're talking to God, and you say, God, how long before you avenge us? How long before you, before you finish this? And God says, hold on. Not done yet. More of you must die. Well, that's not the answer I wanted. I wanted something very different than that. And I, I think maybe this one stings a lot because I think many, many of us were raised in a church world in the American church, which was raised around this prosperity doctrine, 
that basically preached health, wealth, and prosperity, that, that said things, and, and people say things like, well, well, if, if, if your blah, blah has cancer, it's just because you didn't have enough faith, because you didn't pray right. And if you don't have enough money in your bank account, it's because you don't have enough faith and because you didn't pray right. And if you're suffering, it's because you don't have enough faith. That's not the story of the Bible. That's a distorted, perverted gospel that humans came up with. The truth of the matter is, the more faith you have, biblically speaking, the more you may suffer. Uh, suffering is not the sign of lack of faith. Suffering is the sign that there is great faith. Because the great ones, those with the greatest faith, always seem to suffer the most. And yet I'm willing to bet if, if we sat around the throne room with them and looked at them eye to eye and said, hey, you suffered great for God, would you redo it? I'm willing to bet every single one of them would say, absolutely not. I would do it the same way. I would do it the same way over and over and over because there was power and there was purpose for their life even though they suffered. The other thing I like about this part of the story is, is the, the, these Christians are sitting around God. They're in heaven. They're at the throne room and they're looking at God and they're going, why won't you fix this? Why won't you make this right? I think sometimes we're scared to have real hard conversations with God because we think we only have to give God our Sunday school face, right? It is perfectly acceptable to have real frustrated conversations with God because we live in a world where real bad things happen. Because I, I remember, y'all remember Sandy Hook? When the guy went into the school and killed a bunch of little kids? For days and weeks, I had real angry, frustrated conversations with God. And I've had them since then. And I don't think that's a lack of faith on my part. I think it's an understanding that the God I talk to is a good, good father who wants me to bring my real emotions to him, not my little Sunday school voice. And some of you have lost sons or daughters too early. And I'm willing to bet you went to God and you had frustrating, angry conversations. Or maybe you lost a husband or a wife and, a, and you went to God in a frustrated, and that is okay. We must allow people to be frustrated and angry sometimes. You know, too many times the church answer is cover up your pain, smile, act like nothing's wrong. How does that work when you just push it down and push it down and push it down? It makes it worse. Makes it worse right? We have to. It's, you know, I was listening to this podcast this week about the songs we sing in church. And I don't know, like all of our songs are how great is our God. And they're all real kind of positive and stuff, you know. And I think that's good and I think it's righteous. Because I think I can be singing how great is our God even when I am incredibly angry with him. Because I'm mad. But I know at his core he is still good. And so, man, I would just encourage you, don't, don't hide the truth of the conversations you want to have with God. Find a group of people you can trust and have real conversations. Because God loves you in your anger just as he loves you in your love. Don't forget that. All right, Revelation 6, 12. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. Yikes. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. Okay, now I get it. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. 
Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the riches, the mighty, everyone else, both slave and free, they hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? There's a lot in this passage. Okay, and I encourage you guys to go back and read it on your own. But I think one of the main things we see happening in here is one day we will all stand in front of the king. And the lamb has a wrath, right? We love the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus, and those things are good. But there's also a wrath to the lamb, right? And I think one day everyone is going to stand in front of him, and it won't matter if you're rich, it won't matter if you're poor, it won't matter if you're a slave or free, it won't matter if you're black or white or whatever, Republican, Democrat. We are all going to stand in front of the king, and judgment is coming for everyone. And on that day for many people, I'm not trying to scare anybody, but I'm just on that day for many people, I believe you would choose to be crushed by a mountain or a rock before you would choose to continue on in the wrath of the Lamb. And so it's as if in this moment when we stand in front of the judgment seat that everything good is sucked out of the world. And there's a day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And for many, it will be an incredible experience. For many others, I think the experience is described, and I think its own words are probably pretty solid. So go back and read that one. All right, then we have chapter 7. Chapter 7 is so, so, so good. I wish I could spend more time on it today. Go back and read it. Chapter 7 is is an interlude. It's a a space between chapter 6 and chapter 8. Don't confuse it with an intermission because don't go eat popcorn. It's an interlude a time of worship and a time of praise, but there's so much good in this. And man, I encourage you guys heavily this week to get alone and read Revelation chapter 7, 16 and 17. Read it over and over and over. Revelation chapter 7, 16 and 17. Read it over and over and over until you believe it's true. Uh, But let's hit Revelation 7, 3. It says, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we have put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Okay, so what is the seal for those who have received Christ? Who is the seal for those who have received Christ? Anyone know? The Holy Spirit, right. But he's comparing this to the way a king would seal a letter or the way a king would send an ambassador. And if a king sent an ambassador or a letter, he would seal it in a very prominent place. There would be a clear seal from the king in a very prominent place. So he's saying there's these sealed people, 144,000, sealed with the Holy Spirit. But all of these people appear to be from the tribe of Israel. And so he hears this army, and this army is rising up. It's 144,000 from the tribe of Israel, and they're sealed. And he hears an army, but he's going to turn and see something different. He hears an army of Jewish people, but then he turns. Does this sound? John's done this before. He's heard something and then turned and saw something else. He hears that army, and then he turns and sees in verse 9, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing their white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. He hears this, this, this number from the tribe of, of Israel. But then he looks and sees, oh gosh, it's everybody. It's this great nation, this tribe, and there's, there's black and white and brown and yellow and all these different kinds of people coming together. 
And what was for just a group has now become for all who will bow their knee. And and now now the descendants of Abraham aren't just Jewish people. Now the descendants of Abraham are all those who will be sealed with his Holy Spirit. And we're all part of one family. We're all part of one tribe. And we're all part of one nation. And listen to Revelation 7, 11. Then one of the elders said to me, these in white robes, who are they? Where do they come from? And I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So there's this time of great suffering, and I would say we're probably living in one of those times. But, but there's these people who've come through these times of great suffering. They weren't zapped out before the time. They came through the time of great suffering, and their robes were made white. How? How were their robes made white? They washed them in the blood of the Lamb. You ever made anything white by washing it in blood? Let me know how that works for you, you sicko. Who does that? I'll make this white, right? But their robes were made white. They were made clean. They were made whole. They were made pure, not not because of their political affiliation, not because they voted a certain way, uh, not not because, you know, they they had this theology, but, but because the blood of the lamb, because they gave their life to Jesus the Christ, they were made clean and pure. Man, I think there's power in that. This army that was rising up, it wasn't the strength of their number, it was the strength of the lamb. They laid down their lives with the lamb. And then, guys, you've got to read, read 16 and 17. This number of people, you can read it right now while I'm talking if you want to, if you've got your Bible open. This number of people who's gathered around the throne from all different nations and tribes and, and their robes are made white because they laid down their lives with the lamb. And there's no more crying and no more tears and no more hunger and no more sadness and no more pain. It's this group of people completely restored in perfect unity to each other and God. And that's what waits for those who are faithful. And then Revelation, oh, and what's everybody doing, guys? What's everyone doing in this scene? Anyone want to guess? What are all the people clothed in white doing in this scene? Guess. Worshiping. Didn't see that coming, did you? Every one of them. Worshiping. Then we go to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation 8 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence for about a half hour. Did anyone see that coming the first time they read it? It's kind of anticlimactic, isn't it? Right? There's all these seals and they're all building up and there's all these things happening. Then he opens the seventh seal. It's like, okay, this is the one. And he opens it and there's silence. I think there's silence for for two reasons. I think there's two different kinds of silence going on in this. I think there's the silence of those who don't know God because every knee is bowing. Everyone is now realizing who the king is. And for many people, there will be a great and painful silence. Any of y'all ever seen Braveheart? Surely you have. You should all have seen Braveheart by now. Um, But there's this scene in Braveheart where he's being tortured at the end. And right before he cries out, he goes, And he goes silent because before great pain, sometimes there's a moment of great silence. And so for the world who's rejected Christ, for the world who's chosen their way over God's way, there is a great silence. But there's also a silence of those who are standing in the throne room as we encounter Christ face to face for the first time. And I'm willing to bet, I'm willing to bet for 100% of us 
our first words when we encounter Christ face to face in the throne room will be this. <gasps> Silence. Don't you think? Don't you think when you first stand in that full holiness and, and you see what you've only really dreamed about and you see in full what you've only known in part that your first words won't be, wow, I'll be. You know, your first words will be, oh. two silences, two very different meanings, both happening at the same time as the king is fully revealing himself to the world. Revelation 8.3. Another angel who had a golden censer. And a golden censer, is, is a, that's a device that holds incense. Many of you knew those in college. But he had a golden censer. And he came out and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people and the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel takes this bowl of incense and it's filled with fire from the altar of God and he hurls it towards the earth and there comes peals of thunder and rumblings of flashing of lightning and earthquake. So now the, the silence is over and God takes this thing and, and an angel has an angel hurls it towards the earth. There's earthquakes and lightning and thunder. And we'll pick up there next week. <laughs> I suggest you come back. <laughs> next week, the trumpets. For this week, believe that God is in control. Believe that God is good. For a persecuted people living in a difficult economy with famine and death all around them, the greatest thing they could know is the king is still in control. Now, I know there's death. and know there's disease. And I know there's a lot of broke folks right now. But in the midst of all of these things, the throne is still occupied. Amen. If you are encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at thegracechurch.net. And again, thanks for listening to the Grace Church Podcast.